Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, you are part of an elite group, and you will have noticed that a few times Doug and I have done episodes where we've taken a close look at a particular album. We did Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. We did London Calling by The Clash. I can't remember the others. We've done four or five. And we decided that we wanted to do something different. We want to talk about an album the same way. But rather than choose an album that both of us know, we decided that we would choose an album that one of us knows well and the other doesn't know well to make a sort of reaction podcast, if you know the kind of reaction videos. I get to go first, so I have selected Miles Davis's Bitches Brew, the classic 1970 album that was the template for jazz fusion. Doug, have you spent your weekend listening to Bitches Brew? Strangely, yes. Actually, <laughs> let me tell you how I listened to it, because I had I knew I had to approach this I knew I had to approach this one differently. And so <laughs> last week when I I had some busy work to do on the computer. I put it on and I left it on in the background, didn't think about it. Just had it on in the background, just listened to it. Some of the stuff I think I've heard before, but I'm not sure. Um, Bitches Brew is of an era of Miles Davis that I haven't really paid much attention to. Descendants of that record, you bet, but uh, not that particular record. So I listened to it, I don't know, on Thursday. Then on Saturday night, I listened to it with headphones on in my indoor hammock <laughs> and um i <laughs> i fell asleep for 10 minutes during uh the middle of pharaoh's dream but then i snapped out of it and then i kept going and so i listened to it and then i listened to it again this morning all the way through just you know diddling around the house and doing stuff like that it's pretty interesting if if you don't if you don't know what to expect this is a shocking record because there's no there's no songs on here, you know. It's it's jazz. It's improvisational jazz, where they have a few ideas, and there's a bunch of guys. <laughs> there's a lot of guys playing on this record. Um, a lot of instruments are duplicated, although you wouldn't really know it if, unless you were paying attention. It's uh, it's really very interesting. I really enjoyed listening to it. However, I st I do not care for the two longer pieces. I'm going to have to give them some more attention. I don't care for that. In fact, I can see myself, if I bought this album in 1970 when it came out, I probably would never take that disc out of the jacket. It's a double album, right? And I probably only would have listened to side three and side four, which has the shorter tracks, and I might also say a bit more accessible. And, and, and all that means is sometimes you hear a drum beat and sometimes you hear a, a melody. <laughs> That's all that means. Sometimes there's no melody. At, you know, it's jazz. Um, but you can, the, the thing I thought was hilarious, or not hilarious, the thing I thought was funny was I could hear everything that I like about jazz rock fusion in that. Return to Forever, of course, Chick is in the band. Uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra, of course, John McLaughlin's in the band. Um, uh, who else is in weather report, weather report from Joe Zawinul. Um, all of these, all of this music that I like, Jeff Beck, George Duke from Frank Zappa. Um, you can hear George Duke ripping off keyboard runs from this album. 
So it was really fun to listen to and, and hear that stuff. And as I said, those final that final batch of tracks is to me much more interesting. It has more to, more to sink your teeth into than the first two. That's not to say that the first two longer tracks aren't deserving of more listening. Um, they are, but it's hard to grasp their enormity on the first listen. It's, it's, it, it just needs more listening. That's all. But in general, I thought it was pretty good. In fact, I've added it to my library. And, then, and like I said, side three and side four will probably pop up a lot on my, uh, in my playlist. I agree with almost everything you say, except, except you talk about the shorter tracks on the side three and four, the shorter tracks like Spanish Key, which is 17 and a half minutes. There is one short track, John McLaughlin, written by Miles Davis, four minutes, 23 seconds. The only track that Miles doesn't even play on, and that's interesting. He's really present on all the tracks, but he's not present like, listen to me, I'm the leader. He lets the other musicians really, really take their solos and, and get into the music. He gave instructions. He said, we're going to do all these chords. I wish I could do, I wish I could do the Miles Davis voice. He said, we're going to take these chords. I just want you to play these chords, play anything you want, just stick in these chords, right? So there was nothing really planned, kind of like Kind of Blue, kind of like Kind of Blue. Hey, what do you know? This said, a few of these songs had been performed through 1969 with his band. So they'd been performing them live and they had more of a structure. Not necessarily the same personnel, kind of complicated. I want to put this into context. The first recording sessions for this album started on August 19, 1969, the day after the end of the Woodstock Festival. So that gives you an idea of what's in the air. Not that Miles was at Woodstock, but he was kind of coalescing jazz and rock into something new. Now, to be fair, his previous album, In a Silent Way, was his first electric album. It was low-key, almost ambient at times, but it kind of got him on the, the, the road to this kind of jazz fusion. But as you say, it's like, what's, what's the story about the Sex Pistols gig in Manchester in June 1976 at the Manchester Free Trade Hall, where 30 people attended the concert and every one of them went on to start a band? It was kind of like that. Every musician, well, almost every musician who performed on this was involved in that 1970s movement of jazz fusion, which, let's face it, Made some wrong turns at times. Hey, it's it's jazz. <laughs> That's what happens sometimes. Well, but jazz fusion led us to kind of smooth jazz and kind of overdoing jazz fusiony electric stuff. But like any subgenre, I would I would like to be the devil's advocate. Although I don't know why it requires one. Smooth jazz has an audience. Yes, they're not very sophisticated. It's the same sort of you have it everywhere. You have it in rock music. It's yacht jazz. It's, it's yacht jazz, right. I mean, some of it is pretty good if you look at it from the point of view as, wow, you made that and you sold a million of them? Wow, <laughs> that's pretty good, buddy. You know, Spyro Gyra used to headline the Newport Jazz Festival. Yeah. I mean, where Louis Armstrong used to headline it. So, I mean, these were the, these were the acts, this smooth jazz stuff. That was a radio station in Newport that used to play smooth jazz all the time. They did very, very well with it. But, of course, you could only do it there because, as you said, it's like yacht jazz. It's very much like that. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, uh, smooth jazz is not for jazz people. Smooth jazz is for it's, – it's, it's just not sophisticated no, it's not. enough. In fact, it, it's, it's required not to be. It is supposed to be 
you know, street level. Yeah. I, you can whistle it. You can whistle a jazz yeah. tune. So I don't have any problem with that. And as long as it has a little funk and a little rhythm and a little groove in it, it's it's all right with me. But I, I would never confuse smooth jazz with Joe Zawinul or Chick Corea or anything like that. They're completely different. Well, Weather Report was kind of heading in that direction. I like, see, that's what I mean. They All of them tried to commercialize and pop eyes that, that sound. And you, I mean, it's so there, it's so obvious that they took it and, and, and went with it and started their own bands and said, we can make money doing this and we can make it more palatable for rock audiences. And I, I think that's really what happened. Well, it was Miles Davis's first gold record, Bitches Brew, but not until 1976. It took a while to get there. It was, it was ahead of its time. It was also... In some ways, after its time, it was really, it really comes in as a kind of, it's taking some of that free jazz from the 60s and putting an electric bed underneath it, to use a technical term, the musical bed. But but also, highly complex rhythms, polyrhythms, three keyboardists, often- Sometimes. And, sometimes, yeah, often. Mm-hmm. Percussion, guitar, the kinds of things, the kinds of- Jazz ensembles have always been, I want to say, agnostic. You can have any group of musicians, a a jazz trios, piano, bass, and drums, but you can add anything and make a jazz ensemble. You can have five tubas if you want, and, you know, you can still play jazz. But here he was was kind of – it's almost as if he wanted to stir things up. And, you know, it's kind of – when you think of the the three key albums, Birth of the Cool, Kind of Blue, and Bitches Brew, each time Miles like totally changed jazz. And for someone to do that once is a miracle, but for someone to do that three times is literally divine. One of the interesting choices I thought he made was to have a bass clarinet player on it. The bass clarinet is a beautiful sound. It really is. It almost sounds human. But the thing that I liked about it on this record was it sounded like the lower register of a of an electric piano. Mm. And so you kind of hear some of that stuff doubling. And when you hear, you know, the, the bass clarinet kind of doubling what the what the lower register of whoever's on the right channel is is playing, it has this nice this really heavy, funky sound. It was it was it's a great choice. I don't know. I don't know what other bands ever use bass clarinet on any kind of regular basis, but you know, the, the bass clarinet player, I mean, I'm not sure who it is. It's Bernie Maupin who played a lot with Herbie Hancock and other musicians like that. It's just in a, it's a really neat sound. And he doesn't exclusively play bass clarinet. I'm assuming he plays other reeds as well. No, he only plays bass clarinet. Wayne Shorter plays soprano saxophone. And Bernie Maupin plays bass clarinet. Those are the only two reeds that there are. I mean, well, I don't mean on this album. I mean in other in other contexts. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He plays he plays multiple instruments as most reed players do. But on this recording, both him and Wayne Shorter stuck to a single instrument. Really cool sound though that bass clarinet. An interesting choice. Yeah. the The one thing that I so the first thing you need to know is particularly for the two first two tracks, they weren't recorded like that. I think there were 19 edits in the first track, Pharaoh's Dance, and Tio Macero would repeat elements and he would overlay elements. And and it was kind of, there was one review in The Guardian that talked about it being the Sgt. Pepper of jazz in the fact that in the studio, so much was done to bring, to, to give it not just the music, but to add these effects to make it both electric and electronically produced in a way. 
there are there are points where you hear um, Miles on an echo unit uh, or a delay in echo unit, and I'm wondering if he had was he controlling that or was that done after the recording? Do you happen to know? I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't. Because I thought that. that was an interesting effect, and I can't. I mean, that's really that's making his instrument electric. Really, it if is. you think about yeah. it, yeah. Um, it's it's because he's using these electronic effects that. It, it creates a different kind of sound, and I'm I'm wondering how often he ever did that, and if he had control over it. But don't know. You know, I kind of think he did because there was at one point he's doing this echo thing, and somebody else imitates it. Yeah. Now it could it could have been laid on top of it later, I suppose. But I thought I, I couldn't figure out if he was in control of it or not because it reminded me of like Jeff Beck using a voice box mm. or something like that. You know, taking the guitar and going one step further, he took the trumpet and went a little bit further into elect. I guess that's about all he could do is delay effects. And I suppose he could have used a wah wah. Well, did you have the the thing you put in front of the trumpet to do the oh, wah wah? Oh, sure, the mute. What's, sure, mute. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting to note that there was also a acoustic bass and an electric bass. So Dave Holland on acoustic bass and Harvey Brooks on electric bass, not on every track. In fact, there's one track on the CD which is a little bit different. It's Fayo, which is a bonus track, which was recorded the year after. It's a Wayne Shorter song, and it wasn't part of these sessions. So you really need to stop listening after Sanctuary, which is, it's interesting. It's a way, it's a ballad. You can almost think of Coltrane playing. It's a Wayne Shorter ballad. And then as it goes on, Miles kind of deconstructs it and rebuilds it electronically. It starts out kind of mellow and then gets into this, you know, the bitches brew sound. This whole thing was recorded in three days. And I guess a lot of jazz records are recorded like that because they're improvisers. If you listen to the complete Bitches Brew sessions, which you can get on all the streaming services, so that's four CDs, it's got a couple of alternate versions and outtakes and stuff. But what you do here is the actual improvisations before producer Tio Macero did his surgery to them. And that's a, I want to say it's a very different sound because you're, you're getting, you're getting the raw music and question is, which is better? Was it better to have the original? Was it better to have, you know, the production? It, it is what it is, right? Well, I suppose if, if, if the point of, of the music is to be electronic, then I suppose it's okay within that framework to reorganize the music electronically. Yeah. You know, if you, if, if, if your point is to try to, you know, put your foot in the in the in the water of, of electronic music, then there has to be some kind of extra manipulation. And that's editing and re-editing and doing all those things. That's just about as basic as you can get. I mean, then of course you've got the echo unit that I was just talking about. You've got electric pianos, uh, electric bass. It's almost like, you know, there's a Peter Hook guy who's playing like bass melodies and then the other guy is doing like the, the support, the percussion support, the rhythm support. The really fascinating choice of using all these mul these multiple instruments, two bass players and three pianos is is crazy. But if you don't but if you think about it, they may not be always playing at the same time. They may be there. They hang way back, or or they're fill or they're filling out a sound which is incredibly rich through most of the tracks, in particular the first two tracks. It's a dense sound, and and that makes them a little bit harder to listen to than a lot of jazz. It's there's always something happening. I want to just give a quick quote from the Rolling Stones review of the album by Langdon Winner in 1978. 
He says, Dave Holland's bass and Jack DeJohnette's drums lay down the amorphous rhythmic patterns for Miles' electrified sound. To put it briefly, these chaps have discovered a new way to cook, a way that seems just as natural and just as swinging as anything jazz has ever known. And that's a contemporaneous review. That's, you know, this was just after it came out. And a lot of people didn't like it, but a lot of people saw this as, yes, this is new stuff and this is where jazz can go. I don't think anyone expected that this is where jazz was definitely going, but this was seen as an alternative opening a door. And yes, some jazz went that way and a lot of it wasn't that good and a lot of it faded away over time. But electric instruments and jazz following that were not a problem because jazz traditionalists got to be acoustic can't even use a microphone and and amplifiers it's got to be acoustic and so this kind of opened the door even if in a silent way was electric it didn't have the same impact that bitches brew did the um the idea of of using electronics in jazz it sounds silly now that there was a fear of it or there was a, a not a fear of it a phobia about it and that, but you consider at the same time you were seeing rock bands starting to bring jazz, like King Crimson. When did, you know, when did that stuff come out? That was 1970, wasn't it? 69, the first Crimson album. Yeah. So, I mean, it, there's a fusion that's already starting to happen that Miles must have known about. Um, in fact, I was reading a little about the title. Bitches Brew apparently is a reference to the women in his life who were helping him understand what was going on culturally. Now, that was never explained. Um, what he meant by that, but it it must mean also music, right? He must have been aware of fringe musical ele- uh, entities that were happening, and certainly prog rock was was that. So I mean, it. Well, he was more than aware. He he already played at the Fillmore East opening for Neil Young and someone else, so he had already been performing. I want to say in rock venues or on shows with rock bands. And so I want to talk about April 10, 1970, because this is a very interesting period. There was a concert with Miles Davis at the Fillmore West, where I can't remember the names of the two forgotten British bands who opened, but there was British band one, British band two, Miles Davis, then the Grateful Dead. And imagine that kind of night for a concert. Forget about the first two bands. The acid doesn't hit until Miles comes on. And I'm going to link to an article that a like a blogger wrote, Cryptical Developments, Reflections on Music in the Bay Area in the 60s, 70s, and beyond. And he talks about the experience of being at that concert. Miles Davis found it really interesting. It was all these white kids listening to his music, and he really got into that. But imagine the Grateful Dead. In Phil Lesh's autobiography, he said something about the fact that how could we go on stage after just hearing that, right? And this was 1970. Before Working Man's Dead, but they were doing three sets, electric, acoustic, electric. And for some reason, we, we have tapes of about 98% of Grateful Dead concerts, but we don't have a tape of 41070. And that's a real shame because apparently the third set where they did Alligator into Caution kind of sounded like Bitches Brew, is what people were saying. That the dead picked this up almost immediately because the kind of jamming they did was very similar, right? This long form jamming. When Black Beauty was first released, it was released in Japan in 1973. Miles Davis would play a continuous set with no song breaks. He had a way of signaling to the band with little riffs of what they were going to play next. And they just played the whole thing straight through. 
there were no individual songs specified on the records of Black Beauty Part 1, Part 2, Part 3, Part 4. And according to Wikipedia, Columbia Records didn't release it because they had difficulty identifying the compositions for royalty purposes. And they only finally released it in 1997. Yet, if you want to hear Bitches Brew in another way, it's not all songs from Bitches Brew, but more than half of it, listen to this live recording, which... It's smaller. There's not three keyboards. There's not two basses. It's it's different. It gives you, it's the mirror image of Bitches Brew. You can also hear a number of live recordings from the 60s, the late 60s. Miles Davis has released these bootleg series. Originally, Columbia released the bootleg series for Bob Dylan, and then they started for Miles Davis. And there's a bunch of 69 recordings. You hear where they're going, right at that point. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a August 18, 1970 recording of Miles Runs the Voodoo Down, probably my favorite track on the album from Tanglewood. It's really interesting because it's much more restrained and it doesn't get as crazy at the end. And again, Miles with a smaller band without the studio effects, it's a very different thing. But the the one thing that I think the constant in Bitches Brew is that there's a background of cacophony that sounds like modern life, and you can't escape that. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like this is this is what's the song by Chicago that ends with all the cars honking and then fades into something else? You know, it's kind of like that Chicago 1969 rock band playing with brass and stuff. It's that that was in the air, but. The, the whole thing is like a, a balance of cacophony and sublime inspiration as you go through it. And you need to listen to it a lot to really appreciate the first two tracks. I really prefer the first two tracks because they're, they're long and they just go and they're, they're, they're statements rather than songs, right? But when you get to the end of the first one, Pharaoh's Dance, it kind of just fades as if the musicians are still playing on and someone walked out and shut the door and you can't hear them. And you can imagine that they're just still playing out there someplace. I'll give it another shot. You, sh- you should give it another shot. Well, I wasn't planning not to. I mean, it's, it's, it's intriguing, as I said earlier, to hear the echoes. To hear it echo through the music that I like from the 70s is is really interesting. I find it interesting that you pointed out that you put it on as background music, because I actually like it as background music. I, I think it has just enough. It's not ambient. It's not calm. But it has just enough to keep you, to let you go in and out if you're doing something else. It has the rhythm to keep you moving while you're thinking, while you're working, etc. But it doesn't overly, the melodies don't overly grab you. A lot of it's texture rather than melody. It bears subtle listening. It you know it's it's not it doesn't demand to be listened to. It it urges you to listen to it. <laughs> I'll tell you that. I think that it, it definitely wants to coax you into to listening, especially the longer pieces. Maybe that's why I found it annoying. I find them annoying. That's what it was. I found them the longer ones. You're not telling me what you're doing here, but. Again, as you say, I'm going to have to listen to them again. It's hard to keep a 20-minute piece in your head. It's hard to do that without hearing it several times. I don't know how people can listen to this music live and, and walk away and not be, not be unsatisfied that they can't grasp it all. I, f- I find it difficult to listen to the live versions of this stuff because they, they go into free jazz a lot more than what this album does. And I've never been a fan of that kind of free jazz noodling just to play fast for the sake of playing fast and screeching and stuff like that. 
Well, it doesn't sound sincere. That's yeah. it doesn't sound thoughtful enough. It doesn't sound like any kind of thought has gone into it, even though it may there may have been. But I, I agree with you. It sounds uh, performative and not uh, I don't know inspirational, thoughtful. It's not thoughtful. Okay, shall we move on to our next track picks? Sure. I've been listening to a new recording of music by Philip Glass and Paul Leonard Morgan. I'm not entirely sure who the latter person is. This is a soundtrack for an Apple original film on Apple TV+, Plus, which is an interview with John le Carre. I haven't watched the film yet. I kind of like the music. It's Most of it's Glassian, but you can hear that there's other influences there. It's... As a soundtrack album, there's lots of short tracks. There's 28 tracks in 70 minutes. So there's two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, one minute and a half, et cetera, et cetera. It's got that kind of soundtracky thing where you've got a nice little melody that goes on for a little bit, and then you go on to the next thing. I find it really attractive. There's something that surprised me, and I can't remember which one it was, but one of the tracks starts out with the exact same chord changes at the beginning of the Cures song, A Forest. Do 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 do, and it goes through that for two minutes. Hard not to think that it's a copy of the Cures of Forest because that that's it's not a Glassian chord progression. If you know Philip Glass's music, you know kind of like he goes from this chord to that chord a lot, right? I I don't know which chords they are. If we had Tim O'Andrus, he could tell us. Oh, it's a C sharp diminished ninth and into a you know A major fifth, whatever. But but it's an interesting recording. If you want some background music for while you're working, it's not something you need to pay attention to. It's it's nice music. Sometimes we just want nice music. Doug, what have you got? I have run across an album, which I'm sure I've seen before, but I don't really have any memory of listening to it. So let me explain to you what I'm talking about. Sometime in the 70s, I think I saw this record by a band called Medicine Head. And for some reason, at the time, whoever showed it to me or however I saw it, I inferred or was told explicitly, this is a really good record. But I never listened to it. But I always remembered the name Medicine Head. And, you know, I may have heard them on the radio or something. But anyway, I haven't listened to a lot of this record, which is called New Bottles, Old Medicines, their first album from 1970. I've listened to a couple of cuts on it, and it sounds terrible. It's <laughs> it's two guys who do blues rock stuff. Uh, they were signed to John Peel's Dandelion label in 1970, and this is what they came up with. I, I have not researched any more about this band than that. That's all I know. And except for the two tracks that I listened to, I must say that I'm not really looking forward to listening to the rest of the album because it sounds like it was recorded on a two-track deck in somebody's basement. But since they were around for quite some time between like 1968 and 1977, and I don't know any of their music, and I'd like to consider myself a connoisseur of British blues rock, I, I, I have to listen to it. So I will... But uh, if, if you don't want to listen to this record, I wouldn't blame you. I am interested in hearing, they, uh, they apparently are somewhat psychedelic, perhaps. You know, like guys who listen to John Mayall and got stoned in the basement and said, hey, we could do that. So that's kind of what it sounds like. I don't want to offend any dyed-in-the-wool fans of Medicine Head, because that's the impression that I have of them. Maybe I'll have a better impression after I listen to it. It'll be it'll be exciting, that's for sure. New Bottles, Old Medicine by Medicine Head is my next track. 
This was episode number 268 of The Next Track. Thank you for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website, where you will also find links to some of the things that we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining. I hope you like it that way, too. Your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.